We're going through the book of Ephesians in this series called New Humanity. That's the theme that ties everything together because the book of Ephesians teaches us how crucial it is to understand who we are as God's new people. Everything else in the Christian life is just an outworking of that new identity. And therefore, to the degree that we access the full richness of our identity, the more we're going to live in God's power and wisdom and joy. Now, we said there's basically two parts to doing that. First, you have to receive God's blessings. Then you have to respond to it. You first receive the blessings that God gives us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus has done everything we need for salvation and glory. In Christ, you are now set for glory with His people. And there's so much richness to that blessing that we can spend our whole lives just talking about that. But we don't just receive it, we have to respond to it. We have to respond to God's grace for us. How then should we live in light of God's grace? How then does it change the way we do things? And that's what we've been looking at the past few weeks. And we come to a passage today where it's going to teach us how God's grace reshapes the way we live life. What's right? What's wrong? What is Christian ethics? See, everyone wants to do what's right. Everyone wants to avoid what's wrong. But how does God's grace transform the way we do that? Well, let's look at this passage today. Ephesians 4, 25 to chapter 5, 2 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul goes through a lot here. He talks about speaking the truth, controlling your anger, doing honest labor, controlling your words, being forgiving. He zooms through a lot of huge important topics here because he's not trying to unpack each and every one. Rather, he's trying to give us a big picture of what the Christian life looks like. This is what Christian life is in light of God's grace. 
Or put it like this. When you're walking through a forest, you're trekking through it, you get to admire each tree up close, right? But there are some things that you won't see unless you fly above the forest and you get to see the whole forest, right? You get to see the whole shape and beauty of the whole forest. That's what we'll do in this passage. Let's fly above this so that we can see the whole shape and beauty of what Christian ethics is all about. Now, if you look at our passage, it's going to illustrate for us three things about Christian ethics. That Christian ethics is based on God's new identity for us, it's modeled on God's example for us, and it's motivated by God's love for us. So when you look at that, you'll see that Christian ethics is rooted and centered all by the grace of God. It's what God does for us. That's what Christian ethics is all about. So let's break that down. Let's look at the number one. How God's grace changes the way we do ethics. How is it based on God's new identity for us? Now, when you look at the passage, you can break it down into five moral principles you find there. It says, speak the truth, for we are members one of another. Don't sin in your anger, resolve it quickly. Don't steal, but do honest work to share with others. There should be no corrupting talk, but speak what builds up others. There should be no bitterness, but be kind and forgive others. Now, when you read that, you might wonder to yourself, isn't this essentially what all other religions teach you? And the honest answer is, to a large extent, yes, it's the same. If you look at the teachings of Buddhism or Islam or even humanistic ethics, they all tell you the same things. In fact, even in Paul's time, many of these things were being taught by the moral teachers already. So, does this prove that all religions are basically the same? And the answer, of course, is no. Because if you look a little deeper, Christianity is uniquely different from all the other systems out there. Because if you look at major religions or the ethical systems out there, they basically tell you, here's how you should live. Don't do this, do this. If you succeed, then you'll become someone worthy. You'll become someone good. You'll become someone who's safe. You'll be honored. So go out there and do these things, good luck. In other words, you have to do things, you have to reach a standard before you can become someone worthy. You become someone that's good enough for the gods out there to be accepted, whatever they may be. So you have to perform so that you become this someone worthy. But if you look at Christianity, only Christianity says, no, 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 it's the other way around. God makes you worthy, and therefore, you do these things. See, only Christianity can say that because Christianity is based on God's grace for us. That's the core message. The core message of Christianity is not what you should do, but what God has done. 
And what God has done is Jesus came to live this life, a perfect life. He lived a perfect life so that he can give you his perfect moral record in exchange for your spotty moral record. And therefore, you are now worthy in Christ. The moment you became a father of Christ, you became a Christian, immediately, in God's eyes, when he sees you, he sees Jesus Christ. You're in Jesus Christ. When God sees you, He sees the perfection of Christ, the wisdom of Christ, His heroism, His commitment, His goodness, His kindness. He sees Christ. And therefore, you are already perfectly accepted and loved and worthy because of Christ. And therefore, that's why Christianity does not tell you, do this and then you'll become worthy. No, Christianity says, God has done this and therefore, you're worthy. That's why, notice what this whole passage begins with. It says, therefore, do these moral principles. It's pointing to a reason why we have these moral principles. And what's the reason? The reason, it says in the previous verses. You put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, see, Paul's saying, don't go back to wearing your old, smelly, sinful self. That's no longer you. That's your old identity. Put on your new glory in Christ. Put on Christ in you. That's who you are. You're already worthy. You're already righteous in Christ. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, here are the moral principles. Here is how you should live so that your life matches who you are. See, Christianity says you do things because of who you are. And who you are is already transformed by God's grace for you. So, if you've ever looked at the Bible and you wondered, well, what are these biblical commands? I won't be able to do this. That's not me. I, I keep struggling with this. How do you do that? The way to do it is you need to learn to access the full richness of your gospel identity. Then and only then will you be able to live out the biblical principles in full color. Now, you may say, well, Okay, how does that work? Well, let me give you a concrete example. The reality is, this is a process that takes time to fully set in. So, say you're struggling with forgiveness, the fifth moral principle that Paul gives us. You're struggling with forgiveness. Someone wronged you and you're bitter. Now, you say to yourself, wait, 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 I know who I am. My identity in Christ is that I am a sinner who's been forgiven by God. I have wronged God, but God has forgiven me. So Lord, help me now to forgive this person. So you pray and pray that. But each and every time you see that person, you want to get up and punch him in the face. You're still bitter. Now, should you just stop trying? Should you just say, I can't do this? No, you just have to keep going on. Keep 
putting off your old self. That means keep repenting of that bitterness. Keep putting it off. Keep asking God to remove that bitterness in your hearts. And then keep putting on your new self. That means you keep going back to what the gospel says about you. You are forgiven in Christ. You are completely forgiven in Christ. And then you keep on acting according to who you are in your new self. You keep trying to do good things for this person. You keep trying to pray their good. You keep putting off your old and you keep putting on your new. That's what you keep doing. And what happens is one day, maybe tomorrow, maybe next month, maybe next year, who knows? One day, maybe you're reading your Bible or you're listening to a sermon. Suddenly, the truth goes all the way down to your heart. Suddenly, God's Spirit comes and He takes the truth that you always knew in your head and He takes it and He stabs it deep into your heart and it cuts you to the heart and you're transformed. It's as if your eyes have been opened and you start to say, wait a minute, I get it. I was so lost, so wicked, so evil, and yet God was not hard and bitter against me. He was tender-hearted. He was kind. He forgave me. How completely and how freely I have been forgiven. I'm free. And see, when that happens for you, suddenly there's this new space in your heart. It's as if all the blockages there have been cleared out and true forgiveness flows in and you're changed. Do you know how to do that in your life? Of course, no one knows when God's Spirit would come and stab you in the heart. You don't know. But our part is to keep putting off my old self and to keep putting on the new self. You keep repenting of your sins. You keep going back to what the gospel says, the truth of the gospel, who you are, what God has done for you. You keep going back to that and you believe it a little deeper. You grab hold of it by faith and you dare to believe by acting according to who you are. So you keep putting on your new self and what will happen is one day God's spirit comes and stabs you in the heart and you're changed. You'll be transformed. That's how Christian ethics works. It's based on who you are through God's grace for you. And that's what allows you to do number two, to live a life that's modeled on God's example for us. This is the whole pattern. This is the whole outline of what a Christian should be. It's modeled after God's example for us. See, what Paul says in chapter 5 is, you be imitators of God because you're a beloved children. Now, see, it goes back again. Who are you? You are God's child. Therefore, imitate your father. Imitate your father. That's the whole Christian life. And how should you imitate your father? Well, verse 2 explains it. You walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You walk in love. And see, the love of Christ is not some shallow kind of love that only loves when it's convenient or loves only because they're selfish. No, no, no. His love is hard and real and painful. See, Jesus Christ, it says, 
gave himself up. He was the Son of God, and yet he gave himself up to be born as a frail human body, frail human boy. Even though Jesus was the glory of heaven, he gave himself up to suffer humiliation and mockery and ridicule. Even though Jesus was the holy, holy, holy God, he gave himself up to suffer temptation. Even though Jesus was the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he gave himself up to suffer attacks by enemies, suffer betrayal by friends. Even though Jesus, by him, all things were created, but he gave himself up to the cross and to the grave. He gave himself up for us. And that's the greatest expression of love possible. It's self-sacrificial love. It's to give yourself away for the good of the other person. See, Jesus himself said, there's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And then Jesus does it all the way to the end. Now he says, go and do Likewise, that's what the Christian life is all about, is to love the other person so much, even to the point of death if necessary. Now, the moment I say that, you might sort of be pulled back a little and you say, whoa, 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 surely that's just an exaggeration. Of course, we're supposed to love people, but not to the point where you harm yourself, right? And I understand your hesitations because we live in a world where everyone says to you, it should be me first. I'm going to put me first before other people. I'm going to put my needs first before you. I'm going to put what's good for me first before yours. But the example of Christ is radically different because Jesus says, you first. I'm going to put you first before myself. I'm going to put your needs first before mine. I'm going to put your good first before mine. And then Jesus goes to the cross in that principle. See, that's what the whole Christian life is all about. It's to live in the example of Christ. The world tells you, go build up your life and your lifestyle. Build it up, protect it. But Jesus says, give away your life. Give away your life to love other people. See, true deep love always, always involves a sacrifice. Always. And therefore, if you're a father of Christ, you always have to ask yourself, what part of me am I sacrificing? What part of me is being given up to love other people? Or is it all costing me nothing? Is it cheap? To be a Christian means to love and to give yourself up for other people. Nothing less than that. That's what it means to imitate God. That's what it means to walk in love as Christ loved us. That's why if you look again at the moral principles that Paul gives us, what's the focus here? What's the priority? It's not about you. 
It's not about me. It's always about the other person. It's always about loving the other person. See, if you look at the first principle, what does it say? It says, don't lie, speak the truth. But notice, what's the reason Paul gives us? Paul could have said, don't lie because it's wrong. Speak the truth because God will hold you accountable. Paul could have said that, but he doesn't. He goes further. He says, for we are members one of another. That means he's saying, think about the community. Think about the people there. Think about the fellowship and the relationships. Don't lie and destroy that. Speak the truth so that you uphold and protect what's good for the community, even if the truth costs you. See, Paul's saying, speak the truth because it's for the good of the community. It's about the other person. It's not about you. Same thing with the second principle. He says, don't sit in your anger. Resolve it quickly. Why? Because you don't want to give the devil any opportunity to poison the relationships. Think about that. Think about the good of the other people. And the third principle says, don't steal, but do honest work so that you can share with others. See, Paul could have said, this is wrong, this is right, but he goes further. He says, even your work is about doing good for others. You give yourself up to work for other people. And then the fourth principle, it says, there should be no corrupting talk, but speak what builds up others. It's still about building up, loving other people. It's not about yourself. It's about loving other people. See, again and again, Paul keeps saying that the focus, the priority of the Christian life is to love other people. It's to sacrifice yourself for their good. You're always thinking about how to build them up, how to, how to, how to help them, how to serve them. Instead of focusing on yourself, you're giving yourself away to love them because that's what Christ did for us. And therefore, go and do likewise. See, Jesus said, the law is summed up in the command of love. Every command is meant to love. And therefore, each and every time you look at your Bible, you, you listen to these messages, these commands, they're meant to love other people just as God loves us. That's the whole pattern of Christian ethics. It's to love others even to the point of death if necessary. It's for their good. Now, you might wonder, that sounds ridiculously difficult. What makes a person love so radically? And the answer is, the only way to do that, the only way a Christian lives up to that, is when number three, a Christian, is motivated by God's love for us. Now, I've sort of hinted at this throughout the message, but let me just drive the point home here. Christian ethics is all about loving God and loving others. But the only way to do that, a Christian has to be fueled by a motivation of God's wonderful love. See, Paul says again in 5, 1 and 2, he says, Who are you? 
You're not just forgiven. You're God's child. You're His beloved child. You are so loved that Christ gave Himself up all the way from heaven to the grave. You are loved, loved, loved by God. Has that dawned on you? You would know if it has because it completely transforms your motivations to live a good life. Listen, Christian ethics, Christian life is not simply about your external behavior. It's not only about disciplining yourself to do good things. It's not about changing your habits or changing a lifestyle. No, it goes much deeper than that. There has to be a deep inner change in you. There has to be an explosive experience of God's love being burned into your heart. That's what Christianity is, and it transforms you. His love transforms your mind and your imaginations and your attitudes and your desires and your dreams. And essentially, you become a new person. That's what we've been saying all along. You have a new identity in Christ. And it's an identity born in you by His love. His love transforms you. Unless that happens, unless His love transforms you, then trying to live a good Christian life is only going to be cold, mechanical, superficial. There won't be any life. There won't be any joy. There won't be a spark in your eyes as you obey Him. But that's not real Christianity. Real Christianity is a, it's a, it's a blazing fire inside you. It's a thunderstorm there. It's, it's a passionate dance with your loving God. And you always start to say, Lord, I want to do this. I want to do good things. I want to love others and please you because you love me so. It transforms your motives for trying to live the Christian life. And also, it transforms your motives for trying to avoid sin. See, there's this amazing line here that Paul says in verse 30. It says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for a day of redemption. Paul's saying, don't sin because then you'll grieve the heart of the, lo- of the God who loves you so. Each and every time you sin, you're grieving His heart. And see, if His love has come in and grabbed your heart, and once you grasp that your sins crush His heart, it transforms your attitude towards sin. You're no longer just trying to avoid sin because you're afraid of the consequences or because you're living off some spiritual pride. No, you're avoiding sin because it crushes your heart to know that it grieves your Father who loves you so. It crushes you. And instead, you you, you have this new desire to live up, to live a life worthy of your calling in Christ to live according to who you are because of His grace for you. His love completely transforms our motivations for living Christian life. Some years ago, there was a movie that came out called A Quiet Place. Maybe you've seen it. 
And the story is monsters have taken over the world, right? These monsters apparently were blind, but they had incredibly sharp hearing. So you have to be completely silent because any noise you make means they will quickly hunt you down and you'll be killed. And so the movie's story revolves around a family trying to survive. There's a husband and a wife, a daughter and a son. And the story is they're trying to survive. They, they're, they've learned to live a life that's completely silent, no noise, so they'll live. Uh, but of course, like all movies, eventually things crumble and near the end of the movie, what you have is the daughter and the son are trapped inside a car. And there's a monster right on top of it that's about to get them. And the opposite side of all this is the father watching things happen in horror. He's absolutely terrified, absolutely horrified. But he could have just walked away, stayed silent, and walked away. He would have survived. But what does he do? And here is my favorite scene in the movie. The father looks at his daughter from a distance, eye to eye. This daughter, who had constantly rebelled against him, constantly pushed him away, constantly grieved his heart, this daughter, the father looks at her in the eyes. And by hand gestures, he tells her, I love you. I have always loved you. And then he shouts. He screams at the top of his lungs. And he gets the monster's attention. And then he, get, he goes to his death, saving his children. Now, I tell this story because if you want to be transformed by God's love, then you need to see how God took on a far worse monster for you. I mean, just look at Christ. Look at Jesus. Look at him before the night he was killed. Jesus, the strongest man who ever lived, the wisest man, the, the most courageous man, the most Heroic man that whoever lived that night, Jesus was not calm. He was absolutely horrified, absolutely terrified at what would happen at the cross. He knew that at the cross, the sins of the world would be put on him. And the perfect righteousness and justice would fall on those sins in him. He was absolutely horrified, but he could have walked away. But what does he do? Jesus looks at us from a distance, and he tells us, I love you. I have always loved you. And then he goes to the cross. And there he shouts, he screams at the top of his lungs, and then he goes to his death. Listen to him once again. Look at his love and let his love grab your heart. And let it transform you from the inside out until you can say, Lord, how can I grieve your heart and sin? Let me live a life that honors you and makes you happy because you loved me 
so. That's how we live the Christian life. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven who loved us so, Lord, you forgave us completely and freely in Christ. You were kind, you were tender-hearted towards us. So, Lord, help us to live a life worthy of that calling of grace in Christ. Help us, Lord, to respond by loving others and loving you so radically that we would give ourselves up for you and for other people. Lord, help us to love as you loved. Help us to experience your love day by day and help us to absorb it and let it transform us from the inside out. Thank you, Lord. Empower us as we go out and do your will in our lives. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. In his name we pray. Amen.